0: or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Richard Boyatzis. Richard is the Distinguished University Professor of Case Western Reserve University and professor in the Department of Organizational, Behavior, Psychology, and Cognitive Science. He also has a B.S. in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT and an M.S. and Ph.D. in Social Psychology from Harvard University. Using his intentional change theory, he studies sustained desired change at all levels of human endeavor, from individuals to country change. He began research on helping and coaching in 1967 and began coaching executives in 1969. About 30 years ago, Richard launched a series of longitudinal studies on coaching, followed by three functional magnetic resonance imaging and two hormonal studies of coaching processes that are more effective in helping people be open to change than typical approaches. Based on his work begun in 1970 as one of the founders of the competency movement in human resources, he has launched several landmark researches on the competency of coaches that predict client change. He is the author of more than 200 scholarly articles and 75 practitioner articles on leadership, competencies, emotional intelligence, competency development, coaching, neuroscience, and management education. His Coursera massive open online course on leadership, Emotional Intelligence and Coaching, have over 1.5 million visitors and has enrolled people from over 215 countries. His nine books include The Competent Manager, the international bestseller Primal Leadership with Daniel Goleman and Annie McKee, Resident Leadership with Annie McKee, and one of my personal favorites, a book I just read, Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth with Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Oosten. He is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science, the Society of Industrial and Organization Psychology, and the American Psychological Association. Let's continue now in our conversation with Richard. Well, when we think about the topic of coaching, to compliance versus coaching with compassion you know i'd love to just talk for a minute richard about you know how that can translate to bravery so for example is it more likely that you can be braver and when i say braver i mean saying something that needs to be said or doing something that needs to be done to help others right you always want to be respectful and professional in that effort Uh, is it more likely to happen uh, if you are attempting to operate through compassion than compliance, where I'm saying it because I have to, or I'm supposed to, or I need to. Yeah,
1: you're exactly. It's exactly right. We know now, and, and we've known for the better part of the last twenty years that humans have brain-to-brain communications. It's not just the stuff of Star Trek. It's real. And Joseph Ledoux has shown it very often. It stimulates it in eight to forty thousandths of a second. So it's very. It's deeply unconscious. And that means that we infect others around us with our feelings, the state we're feeling inside, not necessarily what we think we're showing. And that works positively and negatively. If you're feeling um, hesitant, if you're feeling cautious, if you're feeling, "Mm, I don't know if this is worth the risk, your client's going to pick it up. If they're feeling it, you're going to pick it up. So what happens is, the only chance we have is if we can help move people, and very often this goes back to your the feeling of your evolve idea, in small doses. Move them into this positive state, this positive emotional attractor, and if you can help people who are feeling scared or defensive or wrapped up in obligatory behavior in small doses into the PEA, then all of a sudden you might be able to get them to dream. I mean, the key question we, we train I train all of my graduate students, whether they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, to be able to um, have this experience with others in which they ask them the question, if your life were perfect 10 to 15 years from now, what would it be like? And a lot of people just can all of a sudden sit back and start to open up and they'll smile and they'll start talking. There are people who either come out of traumatized backgrounds or have been abused psychologically by people, parents included, who can't take it. Or they come out of totalitarian regimes where they could have been sent, as I've had a few people over the decades, to the to the various forms of gulags for divulging that. For those people, we often have to go to a more playful version, which says, if you just won, well, if you're in Cleveland, we say 50 million, but if you're in New York, it's would say $80 million after tax in the lottery or Boston, you'd really need 80 million in Boston. So um, if you won that after tax, how would your work or life change? That playful version sometimes gets people to open up a little and then you can go back to the other. But um, to go back to your the question you're asking, when the, other, when the client is feeling defensive or scared, it is bleeding to you, you're getting infected with it. So you have to really trust the process. You have to believe in your method and, and in this sense, you have to feel uh, your, the courage of your convictions to guide them in a way that can help them open up because when we're in this negative zone. I mean, there's plenty of research on this. Our peripheral vision drops from 180 degrees to 30 degrees. We miss seeing things happening around us, whether they're in their fam- our families or our competitors or our clients. When this happens, we are cognitively impaired. We can't think in complex terms. We're not very creative and we're not open to other people, including a coach and we're not open to emotions. So a lot of the impairment that is caused under normal annoying stress is enough to throw you off. When you add the acute stressors of a global pandemic of um serious disruptions in people's livelihoods of political and social disruptions, you know, it's way over the top. So, you know, if anything I would say Coaches have a hard, a lot of work cut out for them these days because we're battling all sorts of forces that are hitting people.
0: Well, and whether it's a coach working with a client or a subordinate working with a boss, and oftentimes we talk about the need for a subordinate to share feedback with a boss in uh, to help the boss understand how others might be experiencing them in order to help them. It's important, I think, what you're saying to ensure the boss does not feel threatened or judged or belittled in that conversation because they instantly will be defensive or argumentative. But you have to create an environment where they're going to be open to hearing what it is you have to say, which of course you will always present respectfully and professionally to ensure that they're listening in an effort to process it and hopefully then do something a little bit different that might have a better outcome.
1: But even if you're doing all those things, You have to be very careful that the person really wants the feedback. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, yes, tell me how I did. You know, it's like, well, you know, whenever you're presenting and you do evaluations, the smile sheets at the end, you know, everybody says, oh, well, I want feedback. Well, here's a a flash. I don't. I I should say (laughs) I don't want the feedback right away. I'm okay three to five days later. But at the end of it, if I'm giving a talk, whether it's to 100 or 2,000 people, at the end, I want people to say, you were fantastic. You know, that moot rocked my soul. That's what I want at the end because I'm feeling like I just spent myself on this thing. A few days later, I can sit down and look at the feedback and say, okay, I've got to adjust something. When you're moving up with feedback, you're going against the norms in almost every society in the world, except the most egalitarian, which are the Scandinavian and Australia and New Zealand, except for those countries, every other country in the world has a lot of hierarchy in our value system. Uh, the US is in the middle of the whole spectrum. That means that when you're going giving feedback upward, if that person hasn't really said in a way that feels genuine, what do you think? And, and says it in a way that you believe it, even if you're trying to be respectful, it's going to come across as coaching for compliance. It, it's the problem with feedback. I mean, I, I always say to people, if you don't have a really authentic invitation to provide feedback to somebody, keep it to yourself. they said, well, what happens when I see somebody doing something that they could be doing better? I said, it doesn't matter. Keep it to yourself.
0: If you tell them, they're not going to change anyway. One of the important parts, I think what you're suggesting is before I get to the place where I make sure that they're comfortable and open and want to hear it is always asking for permission because someone might say, hey, now it's not a good time or no, I don't want to hear that from you or I want to hear it a week from now. So come back and tell me later, not today. Right. But if you don't have permission to provide that feedback, the likelihood of them receiving it and to be brave with them to share with them something that you think they need to hear in order to help them won't be as well received as if you walk in and just hit them across the head with a two by four i think it's more than just asking for the permission i
1: think you have to use your perception to say do i trust the person's response i mean you know in organizations these days we're supposed to want feedback all the time and people forget that you know, we've, there've been studies showing when you give people too much feedback too often, they go on strike one way or another. Uh, that's what happened in the Lordstown Chevy plant back in 77 and still happens. So part of the issue is we have an ought self in organizations that said we should seek and take feedback. And and some people, you know, don't really believe it. So part of it is, um, I mean, this is the really tough thing. And I, because I get thrown this question from people all over the world What if you have a dissonant boss? Well, if you give them feedback, it's not going to work. They're just going to get angry with you and take it out on you one way or another. You know, your only hope, I think, is to maybe open them up a little bit to this positive state with some other questions. If the division were doing really well in 10 years, what would it be like? Or if, you know, every person coming into work was excited about what they were doing, what would it be like? In other words, get them into this positive sense of purpose. Then you have a shot at it. Uh, The the issue is, can also happen if you have an ongoing relationship, that's a good one, where you and your boss exchange uh, genuine reactions to things. Then you have a basis for being able to offer it. But all too often, I think managers as well as subordinates say they want feedback when they really don't, in which case offering it, no matter how nice you are,
0: is coaching for compliance. Right. And, you know, I think uh, this concept of the word ought uh, is, and you could probably reflect on this better than I can, but coming from 25 years in corporate America and then working in different organizations as a coach, ought is very deeply rooted in most organizations. This is how you ought to be. Here's a policy manual on how you ought to be. Here's a rule on how you ought to be. These organizations are flooded with behaviors and mentalities and perspectives on how you ought to be, not how you want to be. exactly right. Look, Look at the performance review.
1: There was a reason pre-COVID people started talking about dumping performance reviews. I I thought that was a little too much, too far, but because people have a right to know how they're doing, but very often you don't have to tell them, you should just ask them. But anybody, anybody who's done consulting in the last 50 years has said to people, because I've had this conversation with unbelievable numbers of um, CEOs and executives of Fortune, 500 companies do not combine the review of performance with the development plan because nobody's listening by the time you get there and it's all, all itself i mean so when you say okay what are you going to do about it people literally put their fingers in their ears and that robs the usefulness of reviewing how you did and the usefulness of a development conversation so my recommendation is have them both but don't do them at the same time don't do them you know do them as many months apart as you can um, but it's because of this thing that you're just picking up at that very often people would think well I should do something about correcting it but that's back to you know lose weight and exercise more
0: there you go there you go Richard we asked all of our guests to share a story from their past where they did not show bravery and the impact and influence it has had on their career. And I'm wondering if you have a story such like that, that you'd love to share with our audience.
1: One of my doctoral students who's now faculty at the university of Utah, Kylie Rochefort went to a conference. This is about 10, 12 years ago. And she came back and she said, I heard a phrase in one of the presentations that describes you and describes me professionally going all the way back to 1967. And she said, you don't operate on the leading edge, you operate on the bleeding edge. (laughs) And she knew that I have basically gone through a series of now, I'm in my fifth cycle of confronting, I mean, it's like when I first started working with McClellan and creating the competency research and. You know, we we kicked off this whole movement, but we didn't know that. And it wasn't until the mid eight, and that started in 1970, by the mid eighties, people started saying, well, yeah, competencies can be useful. By the nineties, it was considered a norm. But I got to tell you, those first 10, 15 years, I spent a lot of time giving a lot of talks in even academic settings, nevertheless, practical settings in which people, you know, were trying to shout me off the stage. You know, and then I shifted. So I keep shifting. The, the battle with emotional intelligence has been the same thing. Uh, now the battle with coaching is similar, um, especially if we're trying to encourage people to coach in this more positive, caring way. So, what that means is uh, I, I have a hard time thinking about professional times in which I didn't act courageously. Because I happen to be a pain in the rear to people by always taking on innovation, and uh, the net result is I think I spent a lot of time trying to make sure I was my own boss. I mean, I, you know, within two years of working for the research consulting company, I ended up being the CEO, not because I wanted to, but because uh, we had a crisis and uh, the founder asked me to take over. You know, and then I didn't step into academia until I had tenure, which is kind of like being your own boss. So uh, I, I think a lot of that is um, I haven't worried about railing against uh, the things that certain bosses say. Now, I, I've got to say, it gets me in trouble a lot. Uh, I mean, there are large numbers of people who you know, have sought out their revenge in various ways and you just have to deal with a lot of criticism. My parents are immigrants. You know, in, in in Queens and PS 150, they tried to leave me back three times because they thought I was cognitively slow because in 1950, I could, I spoke with a Greek accent. I could read Greek letters, but I couldn't read English letters. And in 1950, that was seen as cognitive retardation, not multiculturalism. Uh, so, you know, part of it was my mother would keep me out of school for a few weeks, bring me up to date, and then I'd go back in kind of thing. And that happened three times and in the process she used to hammer away and, and it's a joke uh culturally but jokes very often come from things that are often are descriptive you know in that the in big fat greek wedding the grandmother says ksenos ksenos which means you know she says with disdain foreigner foreigner which means anybody actually even among greeks outside of your city-state uh and she really hammered away at me at, at the fact that they were gonna try to get me. They were going to steal my ideas. They were gonna take credit for what I was doing. They would steal my stuff. Now, sometimes I'd go out to play where we lived in Queens and, I, and the other kids would steal my stuff. So some of it I could understand, but uh, she hammered away at this in a way which, and then she would say, you have to promote yourself. You have to speak up for yourself. You have to always say, what's going on and that led i think to a certain amount of courage um and maybe too much self-confidence i mean there have been times in which people have said i'm arrogant you know i somewhat playfully say that's their problem <laughs> but, but but the reality <laughs> is if you act um if if you promote the ideas of what you think is important you're acting with courage and uh, it's you know, it's just absolutely fascinating when you listening to various politicians of any side talk about it. It's outrageous because I remember listening, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago to some people railing against the then president. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, we're we're in the midst of finishing a book on leadership. And I said, when don't we in all of these books say it's important for a leader to have a certain core set of values and to stand for them and to keep promoting them? even if others don't like it. And they said, yes. And I said, don't we call that courage? And they said, yes. And I said, isn't that what the president's doing? And they said, whoops. <laughs> so part of the problem is you it's received as courageous or absurdity, depending upon the receiver's
0: values. Uh, and well, for- that's, yeah, So, No, go- I was just going to say for our listeners, Richard, just uh, in my, our final question, you know, what advice might you have when you look back in your career and it sounds as though you have been brave and courageous entrepreneurially by saying what you want to say because you believe in what you want to say, which is a whole nother podcast which has to do with if you believe it, then it is worth saying. Uh, what advice, you know, one or two pieces of advice might you have for people who are looking to be braver and what can they do in order to achieve it? One is I think you need a sense of purpose. I mean, we're here, we have a special gift of our God, life.
1: And we're not here just to consume oxygen. We're here to do something, to be something, to even if it's being a loving member of a family, that is a major contribution to other people's lives, uh, to pets, to dogs or cats. So if you have a sense of purpose, it's important that you update that periodically because things change. But a part of a deep sense of purpose, even in my theory, is a sense of your values. What are the things that you believe are really important? If you have that, you've now got your, if you will, North Star. Then the question is, can you speak up for that, those things if you're in settings where it's not going in a good way and you should and most of us would call that courage i want to put one caveat on it it's not courage if you do it um ferociously because then you probably are hurting other people so people do have to be open to information i mean there have been times in which i've stood for something and then found out that i was wrong and in those moments, I have to say very loudly, just as loudly as I might have said the, the other things, I was wrong. I take it back. You know, or from the old Saturday Night Live, Rosanna, Rosanna, Nana used to have to do this tirade, whatever, to say, wait a minute, never mind. <laughs> so part of it's having the vision and the values, and that's your North Star and revisiting it. Part of it is um, adapting how eager or ferocious you want to be in any setting according to um, is this going to help or could it hurt others? And then the issue of you have to be open to learning. And there has to be a certain amount of humility there to say that you may not always be right, but all too often people second guess themselves and just stop short of going for it. And that's horrible. I mean, most of the people in the world don't have Anybody listening to this podcast, I will guarantee you, has more ability to move closer to their dreams than six and a half billion people alive on Earth today do. And if you asked any of them, they would say, go for it. Don't waste it. I I think that's a part of the measure of our sense of purpose and our contribution to others.
0: Well, thank you, Richard. And I do believe this. Uh- behavior of self-created fears that prevent us from moving forward is significant. Uh, Again, topic for another podcast. I do want to thank you so much. And our listeners want to thank you so much for your time today, your thoughts, your observations, your insights are significant and meaningful. And if folks want to reach out to you or talk to you a little bit more, get more information about you and the work that you're doing, how can they reach you?
1: Very often, the easiest is to email me at richard.boyatzis.com. D O Y A T Z I S at case.edu C-A-S-E dot edu
0: Fantastic. Richard, thank you again for your time today. And I just want to remind people of your book Helping People Change. Again, I read it and I thought it was fantastic. I highly encourage folks to pick it up and really uh, deep dive into the content because it is potentially life-changing. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. And we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and our download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com.